Oh, there we go. Um, I, have, I have these four points that I'd like to try and make, uh, make to you in the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, the first is a, very, is a very quick overview of what the water problem is. Frankly, you know what the water problem is, so that really uh, should be not much more than a statement of the obvious. Um, I want to touch on a bit of research that I've been doing as part of my DFIL here on water risk and water return. Uh, but again, I don't, I don't think that will detain us very long. I'd, I'd then like just to talk for a minute or two about shared value. And, and, and actually, it's a term that's had a bit of a tawdry um, rep reputation, I guess, in the last few years because it's been kind of hijacked slightly. But I just want to try and make a case for what shared value could or should mean in the context of water risk and return. <coughs> Maybe if I stand here, it might work better, right? Well, I can't see anything. Okay, so, um, uh, I mean, just a simple way of conceptualizing the water problem. So, so I, I, had, I had the opportunity to do this, a similar presentation to the CEO and chairman of Nestle UK yesterday, and, and they were taking a UK-centric view to their, to their conference. And I just made the point to them, as I'd, as I'd make to you, that actually the water, pro the water problem is pretty much the same everywhere. Uh, the differences are probably in terms of scale, timing, magnitude, stuff like that. But essentially, there's a problem of demand in terms of demographics, competing use, all of that sort of stuff. There's the problem of supply in terms of scarcity, in terms of infrastructure deficits and so on. There's the challenge of quantity uh, in terms of, I guess, getting stuff to people. And then there's the challenge of price. It's either too expensive or too cheap depending where you are and your socioeconomic situation. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, so it could be, in the long run, there's some sort of self-regulating equilibrium where we finally get to an optimal, you know, an optimal position for water. But as, as J.M. Keynes told us, in the long run, we're all dead. So really, we need to try and think about solutions to the challenge uh, before then. And the challenge, I, I mean, the challenge, as you, as you will all, I hope, agree, uh, uh, affects uh, many different types of stakeholder. Uh, and the one that really interests me and, and, and Kate in this context is, is that of, of the corporate, of, of the of enterprise, really. Okay, that's point one. So point two, uh, this, is, this is the first bit of research I did uh, as part of my DFIL, and what I did in this research was I took the food and beverage, global food and beverage sector, uh, uh, and I took the companies that actually report to CDP, uh, of which there were 58 in 14 different countries. Uh, and of the 43 that reported uh, their water abstraction, direct operations, uh, the total abstraction was something like 1,600 million Cumex, or basically a bit more than half a liter per person per man, woman, and child on the planet. So they were the kind of material water users, I suppose. So, so, so I, 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 I defined my parameters of disclosure as being companies that actually made a difference to water use. So the thing that I, the thing that I did in terms of looking at um, disclosures, I looked at the, la the last five years of their disclosure about improving efficiency. So this is what they report year on year, how their efficiency of water use measured uh, typically liters of water per unit of product or something like that, how that had changed. And I, and I worked on an annualized average. Um, so of the 33 companies that reported that data, 
um, the, the, biggest, the biggest gain was, was 23%, and the sort of median gain was about 6%. So that means the median company improved their efficiency of water use on an annualized 6% based on their disclosure. Oh, whoops, takes away the punchline. <laughs> right, so I, I, then, I then looked at the target. So this is when companies in their reporting say, we target over the next five years, eight years, 10 years, to improve our efficiency by X percent. And you can work out from that an annualized rate of improvement. And on that basis, the annualized rate of improvement was 3%. I then basically compared historic improvements with targeted improvements. So if people were targeting to do more than done historically, the number is greater than one. If people were targeting to do less than they've done historically, the number is less than one. And of the sample, pretty much 90% of them had a number of less than one uh, with, the, with a median value of 0.56, which, which we found curious in the context of the narrative disclosure about the significance of water reporting and water stewardship. But I, I guess it's not that surprising because if you think about what companies are doing uh, in terms of managing their water risk, they kind of do the heavy lifting first, right? So the easy stuff happens pretty, pretty early on. And then as marginal improvements become more challenging, the extent to which the improvement, uh, uh, the magnitude of the improvement lessens. So that's, that's logical. But it does beg the question as to whether going forward, using water efficiency as the benchmark metric for stewardship is a sensible metric to use. Because this kind of stuff just tells you you, you, you will progressively move towards zero on that line. And, and, and a lot of where the debate sits today is all about efficiency per unit of product. Of course, that covers a, a range of companies that are doing very different things in terms of where they are on that journey. But the, the in principle point remains the same. Hey, guys. Part of the problem with this sort of, with any of this sort of stuff, is people are measuring what they, what they manage. So it's all about what you control and, and, and defining quite narrowly where the improvements are taking place. I'll come back to this idea of unshared value, but, but there is obviously, there's obviously efficiency that exists over and beyond what the company is doing within its own operations, which, which tends not to be captured uh, empirically at any point in this disclosure. Um, when, when did I start? Five past, right? Yeah. Uh, right, so, that my sec so, so that's, my, that's, my, that's my second point, which is really about this kind of an unfitness of purpose, in my opinion, in the, in the modality of corporate reporting of water efficiency and disclosure. So the, the thing I did after that was I looked at investors, because I was curious to know why investors who kind of take shares in these companies weren't more interested in this, in what I thought was a fundamentally strange uh, system of disclosure. And to work on what investors thought, I polled the fund management firms who were signatories to both the UNPRI and also signatories to the CDP. And this was, this was a couple of years ago, so I know those numbers are higher for CDP because uh, CDP is doing very well with that. So I selected the companies, the fund managers who were part of both of those, so it's a subset of those numbers. And then I chose four countries of domicile, uh, the US, the UK, as kind of Eastern Coast US as kind of wet countries, and South African Australia as dry countries, because we were interested in proximity to water risk as part of our research. Uh, and rather than talking to the, uh, the um, 
social responsible investment, you know, rather talk to the sustainability guys, I talk to the chief investment officer. So these are the guys that run these funds. Senior guys, quite hard to get hold of, um, but, but you get a different quality response from them. So 75% response was CIO, uh, on average working for more than 10 years in the sector. So you'd kind of hope they know, you know, what they're doing. So this is kind of just a synthesis of, of what came out of that exercise. And, and I, guess it's, I guess it's best described as the predictability of investors' behavior. And what, the, what, 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 we, what we found was that even if an event had definitely happened, absolutely definitely, a bad event had definitely happened, if it was sufficiently far in the past, the investor took no account of it whatsoever in their investment decision process. Similarly, if an event was definitely expected to occur, so there, was no, there was no uncertainty about an event occurring, but its time of occurrence was expected to be sufficiently far in the future, investors similarly took no uh, recognition of that in their current investment decision process. So basically, all they thought about when they were making investment decisions or looking at this material uh, from, you know, from the company reporting or anywhere else was stuff that happened in a very narrow corridor. Events that have occurred in the recent past and events that were expected to occur in the near future. And there's, and there's shed loads of very good academic literature about spatial myopia and, 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 and anyway, there's lots of stuff you can read about this stuff to, to, that, that will kind of back this up. But it just, it, just, it just made the point to me that investors were kind of working on, on, a, on, a, on a different time frame or, or, or salience was quite different to the investor to what some of the disclosure was looking at. We, 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 unpacked that, we unpacked that a bit more in terms of looking at near past, distant past, and so on, and, and, really, and really what we were trying to find here were what were the touchstones that resonated most with investors over these different time frames in terms of how they made their decisions. Um, but I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd summarize it as, as this. Investors don't really care about the what, right? The, the what as in what is the problem. They know what the problem is. You know what the problem is. Everyone kind of knows what the problem is when it comes to water risk. They don't really resonate with the where, apart from uh, events specifically. You know, the, you know, they recognize that some places in the world will be more prone to drought, some will be more prone to flooding and that sort of thing. But they, they sort of intellectualize all of that. They don't really think that much about the why, right? They, 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 they know what they can be doing about sorting things out. What they care about is the how, you know? How does this actually affect them? Why should they give a damn about the issue? Um, and, 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 what, and, and what this, sorry, and what, this, and, and what that really comes down to is, is a point of salience. To the extent that an event occurs or is expected to occur or has an implication for their decision making, it's not, it's not about intellectually understanding it. It's about it resonating within their process uh, uh, and, and having touch points that affect them. So, so this, just, this kind of just got, got us thinking, and this is my third paper, uh, about, about how, you, how you kind of bridge this gap between disclosure, which I, I would argue is unfit for purpose from the corporate side, and investors not really giving a monkeys because it, 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 it sits outside the parameters for myopic reasons or temporal or spatial uh, 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 reasons that they don't know anything about. And we, we went back to academic literature and into stakeholder theory. Uh, and there is a paper which 
I would recommend you by, by uh, three authors called Mitchell, Egel, and Wood. And they, and they look at what makes issues salient for stakeholders. And they propose this typology that you need to have issues of power, legitimacy, and urgency interwoven for an issue to matter. So if you think about it in terms of water, power kind of relates to the probability and impact of water risk, right? So, so you know, what's, what's at stake here? Legitimacy is the curious one. Investors just aren't interested if something is presented to them as business as usual. So like if a, if, if a, if a company says, you know, we're, we're worried about water, or we're going to do X, Y, and Z about water, but the investor expects them to be worried about water. If, if they're not going to do anything other than what they would normally do to manage that, it doesn't qualify to investors as a risk. It just, uh, it's just something that's manifest as part of what they're dealing with. And they also distinguish between an operational risk in terms of water and what the company feels it needs to do in terms of, uh, I would say, stakeholder management. Kate, Kate will probably quite rightly pick up on me on that and says, well, the, the distinction is a gray one. But, but it, it, when talking to investors, they make this distinction. But really, no matter how powerful or legitimate an issue is, urgency is the key thing. So unless it fits on that, you know, that U-shaped graph that I showed you, unless it fits somewhere along the bottom part of that, so there's salience and resonance with the issue for the investor, then they're not going to respond to any of these things. And so I guess, I guess this, 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 this is where we try to, um, where, where, where we try to take shared value is in the context of what matters to a company and what matters to its stakeholders. And, and in this model that we've identified here, we've, we've been testing it with enterprise. And, and, and what we find interesting is its scalar opportunity, right? So it's not, it's not just um, you know, the whole enterprise takes it and goes and presents it to its investors like that. You can actually score things within a plant. So the plant manager, how he, he goes back up one, one level to his boss, or within a product line, or within uh, a region or a zone. And the, and, the, and the question is working out the dynamics where the stuff matters. Creating shared value, and the, shared, the, the sort of Porter and Kramer literature on this really talks about companies doing things for customers, for, you know, regulate, for multiple stakeholders and creating this value. I mean, I mean what we found in, in, in working through this work, the greatest undeveloped part of the shared value piece is what management does with the people that work in their company. Why, why, why should people? working at the plant level care about this stuff? To, at, what, what are the touch points that are making this stuff resonate with them? The same charts of myopia and that lower, you know, that lower point on the U-shaped chart apply within the enterprise as much as without it. And, 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 and where we're trying to winnow through our research to get to is to try to think of some of the catalysts. And these have, these have come kind of through, through a process of iteration and talking to corporate uh, to corp people that run businesses. But unless the, stuff, unless the stuff is material enough to matter, no one really seems to care. Unless the quality of management exists within the entity to prosecute decisions, to, you know, to see what a problem is, to respond to it, and then to communicate on that, things don't seem to happen. There has to be motivation that exists within the, within the firm to do it. So it has to cascade outside and beyond the people that run these companies. And then the most important is actually the one of momentum. So, it's, you know, people can launch initiatives and, you know, glossy reports with fountains and kids running around in, you know, the, the, uh, waterfalls and stuff like that. But unless there is, unless there is follow-on and momentum, this stuff tends to dissipate.
And this, and this we would argue, I would certainly argue, is, is, is part of where shared value can be created. So that disclosure becomes much more uh, ingrained into the, into the corporate culture, which is then much more likely to have resonance and salience to the investor. And, and, and ultimately, why does anyone care about this? Most of you will have seen uh, a chart like this at some point, and, 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 and it, is, it is the sort of generic representation of this water deficit that comes at some point. Some of you will hopefully have seen this chart, which actually contextualizes that in terms of the money. So same guys, McKinsey and their sort of cohorts, project a 12 trillion US dollar infrastructure deficit that needs to be financed over the next kind of 15, 15 years. 12 trillion dollars, right? Where's that money going to come from? It's, it's not going to come from government balance sheets. Government balance sheets are shot, right? Western world, developed world, no, one, no one's got that kind of cash to put the infrastructure in. It's probably not going to come from the multi-lending, you know, multilateral lending people like the World Bank and IMF. They become more risk averse. They, they just don't, they, I mean, they ultimately are funded by the same public balance sheets, just indirectly. So they face the same challenges. I, you know, I would, I would suggest that a large chunk of this investment will and must come from the corporate sector. And the, and, and the challenge then becomes aligning the interest and incentives between the companies who operate this infrastructure and the governments that, that, you know, that, that have wider responsibilities. If you're Nestle, for example, or, or I see a gentleman from Coke in the back, good to see you. Uh, you, you are often going into a country looking at your, uh, your operational horizon being 15, 20, 25 years. You know, you know, these are long-term investments. Those are the same sort of time savers that you need to get a payback on infrastructure investment. So, 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 so what you're looking to find there is what incentives does the company need? Maybe if they're given a tax break on a few years of profits, may, may, maybe something is created for them that helps them justify the cost of that investment. And the shared value then becomes, you know, improved water outcomes has a big beneficial impact to their own consumer cycle. But I think, I think, I think what, the question, I mean, what the question is, anyway, is working out how this money gets into the system. So corporate water risk and corporate water return are kind of two sides of that coin. Uh, the shared value needs to be rethought a bit, uh, and, I think, and I, think that's what, um, I think that's where the solution comes from. Uh, and and, and as, as I mentioned, there are, a few, there are a few specific things that can be done there. So, so the confusion and ambiguity are, in my opinion, where where the status quo is in terms of engagement between companies and investors. It's not, it's not where it needs to be. I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the vendor of hemlock in, in the sense that my title suggests that it's all doom and gloom. I think, I think there are positive, positive ways forward, but I think, I think what, we, what we need to have is a different form of engagement. Thank, thanks very much.